You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Michael Minna, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and a faculty member in the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics. This call was recorded at 11.25 a.m. Eastern Time on Thursday, April 1st. Do you have any opening remarks for us? Um, sure. So I wanted to just um, reflect on a few pieces uh, that have happened. Yesterday was a, a massively important day, I think, on the testing front. We saw uh, the FDA uh, offered at-home uh, over-the-counter testing for uh, for two different tests, for the Quidel QuickView and Abbott Spinex now, which I have here. It's um, this like two-pack test. But the, the crucial thing is that they finally, this is a, a major milestone in my opinion, um, where the FDA has essentially uh, has, has authorized uh, these rapid paper strip type of antigen tests for at-home use that will not require a physician, not require a CLIA waiver. That will eventually be the, the type of test that people can walk down the street or order on Amazon or whatever it might be and be able to have access to a high quality uh, rapid test in their home. The, the important thing about the way that this authorization was created is that it's um, for screening. And so the, the, the pack comes with two tests and they're supposed to be used if the first one is negative. They're supposed to be used within 36 hours of each other with the intention that if, you're, if you happen to be in that early phase of infection and, and not yet positive on an antigen test, that you'd pick it up the next day when you use it, uh, when you use the second one, uh, if you are actually infected and positive. So this is really, I think this is just the beginning of what we'll probably see as a, a, a massive um, switch uh, in our testing programs and the po possibilities for people to get tested, the equitability and accessibility of testing uh, that is removing the need for, for doctors. And it's removing the need for extra costs that have been essentially limiting people's ability to get tests and has been limiting people and, and institutions' abilities to test and keep their communities safe. This all happens on the on the um, heels of uh, uh, of an announcement uh, earlier yesterday that the NIH and the CDC are rolling out a massive experiment in two American cities to evaluate the use of rapid at home tests at scale, giving uh, tests to individuals who want to participate in the community to uh, effectively as many individuals who want to use them uh, to be used uh, three days a week. Uh, people's decision which days uh, to be able to evaluate if the widespread use of free rapid uh, at-home testing is going to actually limit and reduce spread in these communities and they'll be comparing them to other communities. So this is a, a massive effort that uh, the NIH director uh, Francis Collins as well as Bruce Tromberg <clears throat> who's been in charge of RADx uh, have been working on for about three months uh, I was lucky enough to be in some of the early calls to think through what a program like this might look like. And then, you know, uh, after a lot of silence, uh, we, we got this wonderful announcement yesterday. This experiment is now moving forward very, very quickly. Uh, <clears throat> so I think that like, those are, are both extraordinarily exciting uh, advances that came yesterday. And all of this is really on the, on the heels of uh, and, and being made possible because the FDA to a little over two weeks ago, created a new template uh, that has actually you know, turned out to be uh, an incredible advance uh, where they have effectively created a new template for at-home screening tests that allowed a company like Abbott to take their prescription-based test that is only for symptomatic people and apply for uh, an asymptomatic over-the-counter test claim to be able to immediately start selling it over the counter without having to go through any more onerous trials to show that it works. And that's because these tests do work in asymptomatic people. There's been a lot of confusion about that because of how the trials are done, but they work very, very well in asymptomatic people and have very high sensitivity when people are uh, infectious. And the FDA has recognized that, that now the CDC and the NIH and then the White House are all sort of simultaneously recognizing this is a very powerful tool uh, over the last two, two and a half weeks. And this is all in the context of new variants coming about and a recognition that while vaccines are incredibly important, they are not the end all be all to this pandemic. 
Uh, they will hopefully be the most powerful tool that we have, but uh, but we need other tools in our arsenal and, and the uh, widespread availability and scaling up of, of rapid antigen tests for people to use in the privacy of their home without a need to report, but with voluntary reporting uh, is going to just be a, an extraordinary gain and, an, and, a, and a powerful tool, I think, to help slow spread, uh, particularly as variants are, are arising and we're seeing resurgence of cases across the US, which is starting to you know, eat away at, at many of the gains we've made uh, recently. So I will um, stop there and I'm, I'm happy to take questions. Great. Uh, thank you, Dr. Minna. Uh, first question. Okay, yep, can you hear me? Yep. Okay, yep. Um, so my question is, um, are the rapid tests um, as accurate at picking up a case if the person has a variant? And of course, I'm not talking about identifying which variant it is, I'm just talking about how reliable um, is it that the person will get a positive result if they have a variant? Yeah, absolutely. It's the rapid test. So every test, PCR or, or antigen or rapid test, whatever it might be, um, every test, the way the tests work is they have to have targets. And if a target mutates, uh, then you run the risk of that test not picking it up. And um, But the good thing is that the rapid tests don't target the molecules and the proteins that uh, our immune system is necessarily targeting to neutralize the virus. So the virus doesn't have any good reason to mutate around these. The, the variants, it's really important to know that the variants are often one point mutation, meaning one nucleotide out of a huge genome, rel relatively huge genome that these viruses have. And so the, the antigen tests are, or the rapid tests or the PCR tests are looking for one small part of that virus. Meanwhile, the variations and the mutations are over here in this other region. Uh, so they have, they're at very, very low risk uh, of, of losing their, their effectiveness to detect a virus because of these variants. They're different molecules that are mutating on the virus. We're detecting one thing, but the virus is mutating a different part of it. It's as if um, you could think of it as uh, if the variant is uh, akin to, uh, I don't know, um, uh, let's say I detect your, uh, I have a detection system to detect your ears, but you close your eyes. You know, I'm, I'm not going to worry about, I'm still going to be able to detect you based on your ears, even if your eyes are closed. Um, so that's, uh, you know, they're, they're different pieces. And so, yes, they, they will still be effective at detecting the variants. Uh, but these companies will have to keep monitoring because there, there are a lot of viruses and, and small mutations are happening just randomly all the time. So there is always a chance that any one of the tests, laboratory-based tests, we've already seen some dropout uh, for the lab PCR-based tests, uh, but as well as rapid tests, there is always a chance that we'll get a new variant and the companies will then have to um, quickly readjust and, and change things, but we haven't seen any evidence of it. Thank you. Next question. Thank you, and, and thanks for that great analogy on eyes and ears. I, I was just laughing listening to that. It's a great analogy. Um, so my question is on the cost and scale up. Right now, Abbott specifically is talking about being able to be um, a more affordable option than the ones that we've already seen and that you've discussed in the past are out there. So those are like in the $25, $30 range. They sold this one to the US government for five. So it is going to be one of the more affordable ones. And uh, Abbott is a company that can scale up relatively quickly, but we're still at a shortage. And I know coming from where you have in the past year, the race that you've been running, this, this seems like closer to the finish line, but uh, are you worried at all about the availability and access? Because we're just at the start of this right now. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm trying to have a day of positivity here. <laughs> and so um, uh, I am extremely concerned about the access and scalability uh, because still it's two tests, Abbott and Quidel, that now have over-the-counter use that are reasonably scalable. The other ones are expensive and not so scalable, um, uh, meaning, you know, Loom and, and Lucera. And... Um, 
uh, this this test will be, you know, it will be scalable to a large extent, but it's going to be, there are going to be competing forces trying to get at this test. We already know that the U.S. government is, you know, the, that, you know, this will probably be a test that's going to be picked up and used for like K-8 school openings. It's already being used for that in Massachusetts, for example. Um, businesses want it. Individuals are going to want it at home. So how Abbott and Quidel choose to balance out where they place their tests for, you know, which ones are going to go to the home over the counter use versus which ones are going to continue being uh, packaged in the packs of 40 and used for congregate settings in a CLIA waiver environment. Uh, I don't know the answer to how they'll, how they'll um, decide what fraction to put where. Um, certainly uh, the, the individual tests that come in the two pack over the counter will probably be more expensive than the 40 packs because of packaging and then market uh, 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 retail markups like in, in CVS and Walgreens, I'm sure that they're going to increase the cost. So my expectation is that once they get to the, by the time a consumer is purchasing these new tests, they'll be somewhere around $20 uh, for a box of two, but I, I, don't, I don't know the actual cost that, that it will be, but that's my guess. So it's not the, the $2 test that I've been really pushing for and it's not the scale. Abbott is still at 50 million per month and not planning from what I, you know, I haven't heard anything more about them scaling up beyond 50 million a month. Um, and uh, Quidel is also, is at a lower scale than that and is planning to bring on new factories, you know, later this year. Uh, but what all of this means is this is, this is great news that we've had some regulatory hurdles come down. Uh, now we need to get more companies in the space that can actually produce these tests so that people can actually access them. I, I worry very much that, you know, uh, for example, Loom had a big announcement that they had an over-the-counter claim, uh, but not a single American has used a test yet, despite, you know, hundreds of millions going to that company months ago. Uh, that's not going to be this. I think uh, Americans can expect to see these tests on shelves probably in the next few weeks. I, I, again, I don't have any real information on it, but that's my guess. Um, but I think they will be limited. There's going to be a short supply of them and that will hopefully drive market demand and we'll see new companies come on board and maybe uh, Abbott and Quidel will choose to scale even to even greater numbers. Thank you. Sorry to bust your positive news. No, 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 it's totally fine. Next question. Hi, uh, Dr. Mina, thanks for doing this. Um, I wanted to get your opinion on now that we have, like at this point in the pandemic with of all these different tests, uh, supposedly widespread access to testing, you know, notwithstanding the scalability issues you just talked about. Um, at this point, do we need a national testing strategy? And if so, what sorts of things should the strategy address um, considering how different the pandemic looks now versus, you know, a year ago when we were first started talking about this? Uh Yes, absolutely. We need a national testing strategy. I think it's being formed, uh, you know, to a certain extent, and and this is really one of the major reasons why the NIH and the CDC are undertaking this big trial um, uh, in these two cities to evaluate: Would this be a strategy that Americans can use? Can we give Americans free tests uh, at scale? Uh, and will, if we do that and get them into their homes to use in the privacy of their own home, uh, will they use it and will it prevent spread? Will it prevent surges? And this isn't, you know, sure, this would have been, had we had these tests in a widely scalable, at home, simple to use fashion, last summer we could have prevented hundreds of thousands of deaths. We could have prevented surges of cases. And now we're, now we're finally getting there. Uh, you know, and some people might say that's it's a little too late, but it's not. We're seeing resurgence of cases right now. And, you know, frankly, my, my feeling is if, you know, there's still a thousand people dying a day in the United States almost, you know, with COVID, uh, which, you know, we've become numb to, but this is still a massive tragedy every single day. And if we can help use these types of tests to mitigate spread moving forward, and if we can use these tests from an economic perspective and a social perspective to prevent resurgence of outbreaks that might happen in a school here or there, just because people are spending 30 seconds in the morning three times a week to use a test, 
That might be that alone might be enough to ensure that outbreaks don't grow, and when an outbreak does start, it fizzles out very fast. That means if we get that in place, that means when an outbreak starts in a school or a nursing home or wherever it might be in the future, we don't have to close things down. We don't have to, you know, take extraordinary measures in order to prevent the spread of new variants. Uh, we can keep trotting forward as a society, even in the context of ongoing limited spread, as long as we are preventing every outbreak from growing, uh, even in the context of cases still existing. And so uh, I think that getting these tests out is a huge step towards that. Uh, getting a national strategy together is taking shape right now. One of the greatest barriers to actually creating a strategy I can, I can imagine that the White House wants to create a very serious strategy around testing. The problem is we don't have the supply of tests to make a massive strategy. There are a lot of companies waiting, uh, waiting to get an EUA. Uh, and if those all kind of, if there was a pathway to get those over the finish line, then we would all of a sudden have millions more tests every single day. And that would give the White House the latitude to actually create strategy along with NIH and CDC to create a strategy surrounding the real robust use of these tests across communities everywhere. Right now with limited supply, there's a hodgepodge of strategies. Some are including rapid tests, some are including PCR-based tests, but certainly what we can see, at least from my vantage, is the strategies are starting to form and really its foundation is in the CDC's new guidance surrounding screening tests. I think that was a, a huge step forward uh, that the CDC put the guidance out on how these tests could be used to limit spread at the same time that the Biden administration uh, helped allocate uh, billions of dollars towards testing for this type of reason. And now we see new FDA guide uh, regulations breaking down barriers. So we've really come a long way in the last three weeks. Um, and I think that we should consider this sort of a pivotal change in the, in the testing landscape in the US. Thank you. Uh, next question. Dr. Mena, are you still anticipating a November surge? Uh, sure, I am. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think the, the, well, I'll answer it in two parts. If we don't do things now to, to ensure that we don't have a November surge, yes. I do think that we will have resurgence of cases, even amongst vaccinated people, uh, sorry, um, even with the vulnerable people being vaccinated, uh, we're not going to have all the kids vaccinated. We're still going to have ongoing spread. When it becomes seasonal again, we're going to see increases. I feel pretty confident that the surge is going to be a lot smaller than last year. But my concern is that the most vulnerable in our communities will have then been vaccinated almost a year earlier. Unfortunately, the most vulnerable are the most elderly. And elderly people don't hold on to their immunological memory very well. And so I think we can anticipate that there will be a gradient of people who, despite having been vaccinated in January and February, who are vulnerable, will no longer retain very strong immunological responses. In that case, then ongoing spread, even just among kids, will lead to increased case counts. And I've been saying that if it's only increased case counts with no hospitalizations or no, you know, no massive increases and no massive increases in deaths, then we should, you know, we don't want to get into just bean counting cases. But if those cases start to translate into deaths amongst the most vulnerable people who have now been vaccinated, you know, almost a year earlier. Uh, I think that's going to make everyone get very uneasy and it would it will cause a clampdown again on society. So my whole effort here with really trying to push preparations that are not simply vaccine mediated, like rapid tests, is to ensure that those outbreaks don't happen. The real problem with public health, though, is short of having you know, placebo-controlled trials, it's exceedingly difficult to measure beneficial public health efforts. For example, if we do get all of these tests out to communities between now and the fall, and people are using them, and we never see outbreaks emerge, people will, you'll, you'll have a, a, a large number of people who will say, why am I bothering to use this test? There's no cases. 
but it might be the very use of those tests at the population level that's preventing the cases in the first place. So it's, um, you know, this is a tension that public health always has. And, and I'm hoping that we don't see this resurgence in cases, but that doesn't, you know, I'm hoping that, you know, rapid testing and other mitigating strategies will help prevent them from occurring. Uh, but I'm concerned also that if, we, if we're not smart about how we discuss it and think about it and, and monitor it, we may end up in a situation where, where people essentially say that, that there was no purpose to it, even when the purpose you know, was to essentially prevent something from happening. Um, I, I don't know if that made sense. It's a, it's a tension that's always existing in public health where the more, the more effective the approach, the more people feel that it's a useless approach because it's actually effective in, in preventing something noticeable. Uh, next question. Uh, first of all, congratulations, Dr. Mina. You've worked so hard on this. Uh, congratulations. Um, I just wanted to ask you uh, about the, you know, a lot of people still push back on the accuracy and performance of these tests. And the things that uh, I'm hearing them talk about is, you know, that ANOVA test where they were only 20% sensitive, the Liverpool test where there wasn't a difference in the two communities. And then some are referring to the INESE statement that's come out because you're always talking about the mean contagiousness tests and really, you know, being able to detect virus early. But the INESE statement evidently says that CT thresholds aren't really, can't correlate well with viral load. How can you help me with this? <laughs> I can. I'm so tired of it. <laughs> but, I know. I know. Um, uh, I mean, the problem is, I've been trying. To, I've been trying just so so darn hard to understand why scientists and physicians across the world are having so much trouble with something so simple. And I think, I think what's happening is we have the science behind using totally different tests, tests that de that detect two different molecules with different clearance rates from the body, and which mean different things. The idea of using a gold standard that looks for one thing to evaluate a test that looks for something else, you know, is somewhat out of the ordinary. And frankly, the science surrounding how to evaluate these tests has never been attempted to be evaluated to, to be created. The science of, of understanding how to evaluate a public health test, every test that we've ever created for the most part is about diagnostic medicine. And I think it's just been extraordinarily difficult for, for people the world around, including our own CDC at times, to understand these massive differences. The, the short answer is this, and I, I'll try to I keep thinking, what are the best ways to explain it? We have a new manuscript that we're writing that we're trying to say, okay, let's take CT values out of the picture. Let's take transmissibility out of the picture. Let's just focus on what we know epidemiologically, that the infectious duration is less than 10 days. And that's why CDC says isolate for 10 days. We know this, this is not a question anymore. The infectious duration for almost everyone is less than 10 days. It's probably more like five or six. Okay, so we start there, less than 10 day infectious duration. PCR stays positive for on average 20 to 25 or 30 days. So if you have an infectious duration that's this long, and you have a PCR duration that's this long, and you have a test which is specifically meant to only detect you during this period of time, then you only expect that a perfect test, a perfect test meaning one that is 100% sensitive and 100% specific to people, to catching people during the isolation window, during that 10 day period of time, if you have a test that is perfect during the 10-day period of time and you compare it in asymptomatic people to PCR, the theoretical maximum sensitivity is only going against PCR is only going to be somewhere between 30 and 40 percent. And that's just simply because you're literally taking a test that's supposed to detect people over a 10-day window and you're comparing it to a test that's detecting people over a 25 or 30-day window. And that is a that's a massive problem here. So we can we can get rid of CT values, we can get rid of viral loads, we can get rid of all of the stuff and just use what we know from the epidemiology 
to show that a 40% sensitivity of a rapid test meant to be specific to the infectious period, specific to the 10-day window of time, should only have a theoretical maximum sensitivity of around 40% when you compare it to qPCR. The problem, and I, I want to be careful, but I'm going to just say it bluntly, you know, the, the problem with these analyses is that the world has assumed that PCR is the gold standard. It is for diagnostics. But for knowing who needs to isolate, PCR is horribly not specific. It is not a specific test, meaning that a large number of people who are detected, who are asymptomatic and detected as PCR positive, don't need to be isolated because, and it's not because they weren't sick, it's not because they didn't have the virus in them, but it's because they had the virus in them last week, and now they just have remnant RNA in them. So this is not a public health test. A public health test should not be isolating people who no longer need to isolate themselves. And this has been the mass, this has been the problem with these analyses. Everyone assumes that the PCR test is the gold standard, but you can't take a test that's meant to be specific to the infectious period and make a gold standard against it that is totally not specific to the infectious period. It's a massive mistake. And study after study after study and physician after physician after physician have continued to repeat this mistake. And it's been really damaging because it's been confusing to people. You know, and I think we just need very clear guidance that, hey, this is not uh, this is this is an ex a lot of people say this is like we don't know enough, but we do. We know that ten days is less than twenty five. Period. You know, we need nothing more than that to understand what the problem is here. And I, I don't know. Does that help clarify? I, I've like tried so many different ways to explain this in so many different avenues and forums. And does that make sense to to people? <laughs> It definitely makes sense. Um, any ideas why it didn't make a difference in the Liverpool versus Manchester community? Did they just not test enough? Or? Uh, can you refer to what, can you remind me uh, of what you're referring to? Yeah, there was supposedly a UK study where they, um, they used the test in the Liverpool community, but not in the Manchester community, but there was still a second wave in both communities. So they didn't think the test really helped that much. Oh, sure, sure. Yeah, the Liverpool study. So just because rapid tests exist doesn't mean they're being used in a way that's going to bend the arc of R. So I've been like the science that I've been pushing for and now what the NIH and CDC are doing is recognizing how aggressive if we actually want to use tests to limit community spread, it's not enough to just make tests available and tell people to come grab one here and there, which is what generally was happening in Liverpool. Um, what you really need is you need aggressive at-home testing. And by that, I mean, it can still be very, very simple, but two to three times a week for everyone who's using these tests. And you need a large fraction of the population, say 50%, to be willing to do that. So you have to make them free, you need to make them accessible, and you need to get people to want to use them truly two to three times a week at 50% of a community. So that sounds like a lot, and it's much more than what Liverpool uh, was doing. Liverpool is now changing. They're they're recognizing, hey, this wasn't quite, you know, what the science suggests is really needed to keep R below one. And uh, they're actually starting a new program now, which is giving people similar to what the CDC and NIH are doing. They're giving uh, people many more tests to use at home. People don't have to now show up to get a test at a site like they did in Liverpool. They can now bring the tests home and use them much more frequently. So. Uh, people were very quick to say, hey, Liverpool didn't work. This testing program doesn't work. But they weren't doing the testing program that is needed. They were getting the first, making the first strides into it, I would say. Um, Thank you. Yeah. Um, Dr. Min, it is noon. Uh, do you have a couple more minutes or do you need to go? Um, I, think I, I think I'm fine, actually. Um, I had I had in my calendar till, that this is going to 1230, so it's fine. Hi, um, thanks for taking the question. Um, I wanted to ask about Stencil's remarks yesterday on the industry call where he basically said that they only made this change because to their standards because they didn't have 
validated home use tests being submitted. And I know that there's a few manufacturers that basically have no interest in pursuing the OTC indication. Do you have any sense why? And do you think that the uh, authorizations yesterday for this uh, serial screening uh, indication will actually encourage them to get off the sidelines? Do you mean the test companies to get off the sidelines or the FDA to get off the sidelines? Test companies not submitting for that indication, for the oh, indication. I, I think that we have to do a sort of a root cause analysis of that comment. Um, many companies want OTC, but many but companies recognize that OTC is hard to get. And these companies are, you know, they're scrambling because they've had a, they haven't been able to get even the symptomatic claim yet. So the, there's a clear pathway here. And in fact, now the FDA has almost formalized that pathway. Get symptomatic uh, prescription claim first and then get OTC. Don't just try to jump to OTC because if you're not able to get symptomatic prescriber claims, then you know, it's going to be very hard to get OTC. Um, so I think we have to be a little bit careful when how we interpret the, the comments. Uh, it's easy to say we haven't had uh, test manufacturers apply for OTC, but that's not because that's not their full intention. It's just because the the stepway, the stairway to getting there is first get a prescription claim, get yourself situated to be able to do that, and then get your OTC claim. But these companies that are making very high quality tests are are getting stuck even with the symptomatic. So, you know, no test company in the world is going to be like. Oh, we can't. Well, there are some reasons why they might now, but um, but in general, they've just been struggling to get through that first barrier for months and months and months and months now. Um, you know, since last summer, um, they've been applying and applying and going around in circles and trying to get uh, the symptomatic use claim with a prescription. Um, so, I think we have to be really careful about what that what it means to not have the applications and and also. We have to be very careful about why the companies that could, like Abbott and Quidel, before the FDA created this new template, why didn't they go after an OTC claim? And the reason they didn't, like obviously they wanted to, they, they took advantage of this pathway immediately once the FDA came out with it. So why didn't they do it months ago? They didn't do it months ago because the previous template for OTC use, and still the current template, unless you package two tests together, uh, is um, it's, it's like essentially theoretically impossible to achieve. And that's because they have a piece of it. If you want to get an over-the-counter claim with a test like Abbott's Binex Now, you have to show in a representative sample of asymptomatic people, you have to show 80% or 90% sensitivity. That was before... Uh, I'm talking about before this new template came out. Uh, but what I just described is the theoretical maximum sensitivity you'd ever get in a representative group of asymptomatic people is like 40% or so. So I guess I have a follow-up at this point. Yeah. So obviously part of the FDA's um, premise of putting this new pathway in was a follow-up study to be completed in that population. Do you think that the FDA will be inclined to take these tests off the market once those studies are complete and don't show the performance that you're describing? Well, we already know that they're not going to show it. Look, I mean, Abbott's been on the market for a while now. We have lots of papers from CDC and others that show 40% sensitivity, you know, so or 38%. Do you think the FDA will have concerns in a few months when those studies are completed and submitted? Well, I think um, I'm hoping that by that point, um, we're going to see science prevail. We're going to see simple biology and simple math prevail, which will make this phenomenon known that 10 days is less than 80% of 25 days. <laughs> it's, not, it's not a hard mathematical equation. Um, so I do, I think, you know, it's going to be very, very interesting. Uh, what the companies are good at doing and what the, you know, is figuring out ways to show the to you using the exact same the exact same test, you can manipulate who you recruit into your studies, which is essentially what the test companies have had to do. Abbott was the first one to do it, where they said, "Okay, 
we wanted a symptomatic claim early on. Uh, and before, before Abbott got the first uh, authorization for the Binex Now, everyone was just doing any time, you know, comparison against any time PCR. And Abbott came along and said, we're going to show symptomatic claim that this works within the first five or seven days of symptoms. And that was just skewing, they got approval by just skewing the patient population they recruited into their study. So my guess is they'll figure out some way to get asymptomatic people, probably pre-symptomatic people into their, into their study to enrich the study with you know, people they know will be positive on the Binex now who just haven't developed symptoms yet. You know, Something like that, that is, that's the only way that you can get an asymptomatic group of people to achieve an 80% sensitivity on these tests is um, you know, to, to essentially know when they were infected and try to target just those people with the highest viral loads who haven't yet developed symptoms. Um, if you truly get a representative sample of asymptomatics, we've shown mathematically now that it's not going to be possible. So I don't know what's gonna happen in a few months when they, when they actually do try to create the studies. I guess the last question I have on this: Do you are you hopeful that the real like real world evidence will come from these pilot studies that will augment a, a submission for a you know permanent EOA or a or a de novo application? I hope so. Um, I mean, the NIH and CDC studies are really the only two that are happening now. Other studies can be done to. I, I think that there's whole different ways to do the studies. Um, uh, where you can follow people, you know, you, they're onerous, but you have to follow people, say, in quarantine who, who have a good risk of becoming positive and ask the question, how sensitive is the test during their quarantine? Once they, from the moment they become positive on PCR, how sensitive is the test if you're taking the test, you know, every day? So rather than using this sort of one-off um, test processes, um, they could have a whole different pathway that really evaluates the sensitivity against PCR doing to detect infectious people uh, during their course of like the first 10 days that they are PCR positive. That would be a really good approach that maybe would be a different approach to um, what is happening currently. Um, I do think that the real world examples will help, but FDA generally doesn't use real world examples as part of their decision making process. If they did, they would, you know, be able to um, they would, they would have a lot of other data sources, but they generally don't use real world, world examples in their thinking, or at least not in their, in their um, templates for authorization. You all set? Uh, yeah. Uh, next question. Hi, thanks for sticking around to answer my question. Um, so we know with uh, the Pfizer news that its vaccine is effective against the B1351 variant um, first identified in South Africa. We know from real world um, data from Israel and more recently here with the um, healthcare workers that these vaccines impede um, transmission, including asymptomatic infection, so is there any other arguments to be made for why vaccinated individuals should be wearing masks? Or do you think that there may be some revisions in masking guidelines in the future? Well, we know that vaccinated people can still uh, have virus in their nose. We've seen that plenty. Um, so it's a little bit of a difficult question. We know that the viral loads tend to be lower. Um, and I, I have to point out the, 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 the amusing thing here. This, uh, this isn't answering your question, but when it comes to measuring vaccine responses and transmission, everyone is okay thinking about CT values as a measure of viral load and transmissibility. But when it comes to measuring tests, nobody is okay with thinking about CT values as a measure of transmissibility. It's a very strange dichotomy between the vaccine world and the test world. Um, but in any case, the data does show that CT values are generally higher amongst vaccinated people who do have the virus, uh, but they can still get to decent, decent numbers. So I think we'd, I, I would be reticent at this point to necessarily suggest that vaccinated people can't transmit. Um, but I do very much think the vaccinated people will have much reduced transmission. Um, so it really depends on the context. Part of this is why the CDC is recommending that if all parties have been vaccinated, then the risk is just so low that you know if you happen to be somebody who's been vaccinated and who's transmitting, 
you know, the person you're likely transmitting to is, you know, 95% protected. And so in general, I think that that's very good advice, but it's very confusing advice at the same time, because then how does society function? Is everyone asking each other, are you vaccinating? Are you vaccinating? Are, are you asking all of your friends before you have a dinner party if everyone's been vaccinated? Um, that is generally what, what's happening now. Um, uh, so I think that, you know, it's going to be complex for a while. Who needs to wear masks? Where you need to wear masks? How sure are you that, you know, that you're not transmitting if you have been vaccinated at low levels? Like I wouldn't recommend, for example, that somebody who may live in an environment that is uh, that has transmission ongoing, even if they've been vaccinated, I wouldn't recommend that they go into a nursing home without a mask. Um, you know, and and all of the data so far that we've seen with regard to potential reductions in transmission from reduced PCR viral loads uh, measured, uh, that's all in the acute phase after vaccination within the first few months. And we, we do know that, you know, the power of the vaccine in terms of the immunological memory form does wane over time. And so I think we have to keep monitoring it uh, over time to see, will people start sort of losing some of the real uh, magnificent power of the vaccine and, and start to have a reduced efficacy to prevent transmission or, or disease. Uh, so we'll have to just keep monitoring it. But at the moment, I would say it's, it's kind of a mess and it's a, a little bit complex for the average person to know like, you know, why do I have to wear a mask? When do I have to wear a mask? How do I make those decisions? So when do you think that that question will be a little more, I guess, simple? <laughs> do you think like, do we like, um, do you think we need to get to a certain point in terms of how many people are vaccinated, the percent population is vaccinated or immunized? Um, or when do you think that would happen? Well, I, I personally think it should happen when cases stop surging and, and cases are very low. Uh, which I think, again, not to bring it back to tests, but I think rapid tests out to the population can really greatly help it. Vaccines are obviously going to help it. Um, but probably, you know, if for no other reason, but from an ethical equity, you know, not trying to create a two-class structure, which is definitely going to be unfortunately divided, not just on vaccine status, but on socioeconomic and race status. Um, you know, we don't want to facilitate those ethical quandaries in our society either. So I feel that we should probably wear masks pretty diligently until we get cases low. It's, um, you know, we've gone through hell to get to where we are today. And the last thing we want to do is keep going through hell. You know, we, we want to get out of this. And, um, and we are seeing resurgent cases. We have the CDC director shedding tears on camera because of the resurgence in cases, pleading for people to be careful. Wearing masks is still pretty simple. Testing is still pretty simple. And uh, unless you are, know that you are in a small space with everyone being vaccinated, I would say err on the side of caution you know, for a little bit longer. Let's see if we can stop these resurgence of cases before they get out of control. And um, you know, and, and really get a handle on, on this. Perfect, thank you. Next question. Thanks, I just wanna clarify real quick, um, Michael, that the test, the new tests, the Abbott and the Twindell, they're the same tests that were already approved for symptomatic use with a prescription, right? But now they're just over the counter for asymptomatic use without a prescription and used serially, correct? Exactly, identical test. This is one of them. Same, same identical test. Um, yeah. Is that the simple test? Because you always talk about the paper strip that can be tens of millions in a month. Is that simple enough to mass produce like that? Well, um, this one, if you look at it, it's actually just a piece of cardboard. Okay. And then that's that's the test right there. It's literally oh. just that little thing. Gotcha. Okay. So yes, it is exactly the kind of test. And and um, the way that it works is you use a swab. And then the swab goes into one of those holes. You literally just take the swab out of your nose and you stick it into that hole. Okay. And then you pour, you pour a little, you have a dropper of buffer and you pour it into that other hole and then you close it. And then the result shows up in the little window there. So this is getting, you know, I think that there's even easier ways like take this strip off of the cardboard and just drop it into like the buffer with the swab. That would be, that's essentially what the quick view does. The Quidel test is really simple. It's just the paper strip that you drop in to a tube and um, 
you know, I think if more companies made just the paper strip, get rid of any of the plastic casing, that we could really, you know, then, then you could really scale up very, very huge to for cheap. And you think they're going to be around $20 or $10? You know? My guess is for this. So this is how they're being sold yeah. now or the, how they will be sold. Just to be clear, this is not, uh, this is just a box. It doesn't, it was just <laughs> sent to me to, um, so it's going to have two in it. I, I don't work for Abbott. They just sent me it. Um, uh, it's going to have two in it. And I think that, I mean, I can't say, but I can, what I can say is that the packs of 40 sell for $5. Each test is $5 each. So this is a lot more packaging. And then there's going to be the retail markup. So my guess is they're going to try to keep it at the price of like, for the two tests combined, they'll probably try to keep it at the price of a normal over-the-counter type of test, like a pregnancy test or something. So hopefully the, the box of two will cost somewhere like $20. I would love to see it at $4 for the box of two, but you know, I'm, I'm not going to push my luck at the moment. <laughs> and then any idea what the CDC plan might be for screening asymptomatic people that they're working on? Yeah, well, they, they've essentially come out and they've said like repeat frequent screening of asymptomatic people is, is a very powerful way to identify transmissible people, to identify people who are infectious. And, um, and so this is, you know, is this going to be the test in this format that's going to allow people very frequent testing? No, that might be still the boxes of 40 in a CLIA-waved environment. Um, but, but essentially CDC said, you know, K through eight, it's great to test on a frequent basis. Um, that that's what the science shows. Our own uh, CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, published one of the earlier papers last year showing frequent use of testing is one of the most powerful ways to, um, to mitigate spread. And, um, and so that's really what their guidance now is, is showing. I think that this is all working together. And as we get more market forces, if more tests come on the market, it will drive prices down for all the tests. And I hope that we can get to you know, a $3, $3 test um, in, in due time, you know, and even if not, I think the government, you know, there's, there's one thing that I would say, and I, I really feel very strongly that no, during a pandemic like this, no person should need a prescription, no person should need to go to the doctor to get a test if they don't want to. And I don't think a test should be, the cost of the test should not fall on the user. Taking a test to help you prevent transmission is for the benefit of the public. And it can only be in the US's best interest to buy these tests for the public. And this is where it's like such a, a, a difficult thing for people to get their minds around during this pandemic. This is not a diagnostic test. People aren't taking a frequent paper strip test to help their own health. They're taking it to ensure that they are safe if they go out of their house, that they don't infect their neighbors. It's a public health utility. So to ask individuals to pay for their ability to not harm their neighbors inadvertently is really missing something here. <laughs> like we, we really have to remember that these are public health tools and they, you know, the more people using them, the better for everyone. And the, almost the last person that it's actually really effective for is the person using the test. Because if you're positive, you're positive. The test isn't going to change that. And um, you know, so I would really like to see the government get uh, put the put a lot of funds towards just paying for these tests. And, and ideally, then they can use their leverage to to drop the costs even more. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Min, I have a couple of questions for you. Uh, do you have any conflicts of interest that you want to tell us about? Nope, I work uh, not with rapid antigen tests. I work with a company called uh, Detect, and they make molecular uh, molecular tests, um, but uh, not for these rapid antigen tests. Okay. Great, thank you. Um, and what was your reaction to the FDA announcement when it first came out? Um, uh, I mean, I, I think just, uh, it's been a little, uh, I've, I've had a hard time with it a little bit, um, but no, I think I just excitement, frankly, I mean, I'm just really, it's been such a long, long road to, you know, create the science. A year ago, we started developing the science around rapid testing and how rapid testing could work. At that time, I was setting up PCR laboratories and realizing that you know, the PCR laboratories weren't going to be sufficient for actually mitigating spread. 
I set up massive PCR labs at the Brigham Women's Hospital at the Broad Institute, and um, and then developed a, a whole, you know, in some ways, a, a you know, kicked off this field of science around rapid testing along with some other folks. And uh, it's just been a year of trying to build that science, build the lexicon for it, just build the language around it. There wasn't even a language for how to how to describe the the transmission blocking test and a public health test versus a diagnostic test. I've published you know, lots of papers on it now to try to create a new ecosystem, a new language to even just give a, create a framework to think about it. And so to go from there, and frankly, to have an extraordinarily fraught year in terms of trying to advance policy and trying to describe scientific findings to policymakers and regulators, um, to finally get to this point where the FDA is actually recognizing it uh, and overtly recognizing it. And in the same weeks, the CDC, the White House, are, and the NIH are also recognizing it. I think it feels, I don't know, like I, at least I tried to accomplish something and have moderately succeeded. So screaming into the void worked. <laughs> I suppose so. <laughs> <laughs> Eventually. So how are you doing today then? Uh, today has been uh, just like any other COVID day. It's been extraordinarily busy. <laughs> so um, I but, want you to be happy. <laughs> well, I do. Still, you know, there's still so much to do. There's still, you know, I, I do want to be happy, but it's really hard when I recognize that, you know, these announcements are coming out, but the supply is still going to be lacking. Most people still aren't going to get their hands on one of these tests. You know, the some of the barriers are coming down, but there's still barriers. And to really give the White House the tools that they need to be able to follow the science, um, I think is, you know, it's still on the agenda. And um, but I do feel, I feel um, very relieved. And I and I think that after this week, I will probably take a big step back from advocacy. And I'll let the the companies figure it out on their own how to get their EUAs. Um, uh, I'm probably going to step way back from testing and just go back to my research life. <laughs> so, and the global immunological observatory as well. Focus yeah, that's that. that's part of what I would really like to focus on getting set up. The Human Immunomics Initiative at Harvard is a big initiative that we're trying to start to to understand human immunology the uh, Global Immunological Observatory to create a weather system, a global weather system for viruses to track and monitor pathogens across the globe, uh, using people's immune repertoires to do so. Uh, these are all very, very exciting um, to continue studying the immunological impacts of measles on kids um, and understanding the importance of measles vaccines and other childhood vaccines. It's um, you know, I'm so incredibly tired of testing and just want to get back to my immunology and, and public health research outside of this particular domain. I can understand. Um, well, congratulations. Uh, and thanks for all your hard work on this. And just from, from me, thank you. Um, does anybody else have any questions out there? Looks like that mine may have been the last one. Um, Anything else you'd like to tell us before you go? No, I think that's I think that's uh, it for now. This concludes the April 1st press conference.